studio sound up there. Hello, welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today, we're going to talk about on America Can We Talk, Durango, Casablanca, and America Today. Uh, number two, Buffalo Evil and the Leftist Racial Agitators, Twitter Truth, Algorithms and Bots and Liars, Oh My, Sussman Trial Threatens Hillary, and Power Hungry WHO versus the Global COVID Summit. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We had the greatest weekend over this past weekend. My husband and I went to Colorado. I had the great privilege of speaking at an event for Republican women leaders. Uh, and we stayed in the town of Durango, uh, which is the coolest town. It is kind of Old West, but kind of fun, Old West shops, restaurants, and very near Mesa Verde National Park. So we had a, a, just an extraordinary, wonderful meeting with these Republican women leaders and a little bit of adventure hiking at Mesa Verde and of course enjoying Durango. On the subject of the women I spoke to uh, in Colorado, these women are the salt of the earth, love their country, love freedom women. They are not, you know, the uh, ruling elite. They're not candidates, not elected officials. I mean, there were some candidates there, elected officials, but for the most part, these are just, you know, red, white, and blue, America-loving patriots who are looking around and, at their country and think, what has happened to America? What is happening to America? And they are thinking the same thing. Literally, millions of people around this country are thinking, what has happened to America? While I was preparing for that talk, I had this great idea. I think it's a great contrast to try to bring into perspective what I'm saying. My favorite movie of all time, bar none, is Casablanca. If you haven't seen Casablanca, you simply must. I mean, it is just a classic of movies. And the basic story, I think you know, is that Casablanca is actually a town in Morocco in Northern Africa. And Casablanca, I don't know if this is historically true, but the story in the movie was that all of these innocent people fleeing Europe to get away from Hitler are getting on to any way they can to cross over to get to Casablanca. Because in Casablanca, not yet controlled by the Germans, uh, they could possibly find their passage to America. The whole point of the movie was trying to get passage to America, uh, ultimately over this character, Victor Laszlo, but more largely, all the characters are, if they're from countries all over Western Europe, and they're hanging out in Casablanca waiting for one of these precious travel passes to get to go to America. And the thing I talked about at this, in this talk in Colorado was how Casablanca was made in 1943. It was released in January of 1943. I want you to think about that. The war was still ongoing. No, we did not know at that time who would win. The, the war was still ongoing. America had been bombed at Pearl Harbor, so that had, had gotten America started. But the war was ongoing, and... Everybody involved in making this film, actors and screenwriters and the scriptwriters and the producers, the entire Hollywood apparatus that got behind releasing that film, nobody thought they had to explain in the dialogue you hear from all these characters why people would want to go to America. It was obvious. It is obvious today, literally, to most people around the world, except the radical anti-American left in this country agitating against America. But in 1943, all these characters are just, you know, the heartfelt get to America. They have stars in their eyes talking about how they're gonna live in the land of opportunity and freedom and safety and security. So this movie is coming up and being 80 years old. So between then, 1943, and where we are today in America, 2022, where if you read left-wing rags, left-wing garbage media, which consists pretty much of most major newspapers and most major uh, alphabet soup networks, you would think America is a seething 
uh, you know, just evil pile of hatred and racism and sexism and intolerance and, and phobias and hatred. I mean, the left paints America as though, as though we're just, just almost intolerable to live in if you happen to have a certain skin color, race, ethnicity, national origin, if you happen to be a woman or any other minority, they can concoct into an outraged minority. But, and I'm telling you this, I'm bringing this up to say, just think what's happened in America between 1943, when the movie was made, and 2022. Okay, we had the civil rights movement. We very rightfully, rightfully, got rid of segregation in the South. We passed federal laws that give anyone who's discriminated against based on race, sex, national origin, skin color, has a cause of action, can go to court and complain about it. So we have improved access to the courts and therefore access to education and employment and promotions and housing and loans. We have created law after law to try to make America fairer and fairer and fairer. The Civil Rights Act was one thing, ending segregation, all sorts of laws just regarding women. The Equal Pay Act, I think it was like 1963 or something, Equal Pay Act, Title VII, when it was passed, said included sex as a basis. You can't discriminate against people because of sex. You can't say, I'd rather hire a guy than a woman. I mean, we have made enormous strides. America has also continued to prosper as a nation. All of this time, America has prospered. It has become more just, more equitable, better and better and better. Everything in America in the broad sweep of history between 1943 and where we are now nearly 80 years later has gotten better. Everything. We strive to keep a clean planet. We pass laws that protect, in fact, laws that are overly protective, that use uh, environmental concerns as an excuse to control industry. But we have laws just, just piled upon laws and regulations controlling environmental, uh, the conditions of the environment, uh, the way you can conduct business. We are a country that has done more and more and more and more to make life better and better and better and better. And yet here we sit in 2022, and you would think, if you read the headlines in any left-wing rag in this country, including the online left-wing rags, you would think America was a disaster, a country just, just immersed in marinating and hate and evil and racism and sexism. And you think, how could America of 1943 was so great, we all knew it, and here we are 80 years later, and if you're a leftist, you think America's a nearly intolerable place to live. It's so evil and so bad. And the answer to how this could be the case is because the left is lying to you. The left is lying to you when they try to paint America as the evil country they try to claim that it is. It is vital that you understand this. The left in this country is using arguments of racism and sexism and intolerance and hatred and blah, 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 to get to the point where they can entice you, lure you, deceive you, dupe you into hating America, hating the founding ideas of America, hating America's greatness and goodness. The entire purpose of the left-wing media and the left-wing politicians is to make you hate America, the idea of America, and make you hate, make you hate your fellow Americans. Think you're going to find a racist, sexist, xenophobe, homophobe, something or other under every rock. The left uses division to make you hate each other, and the reason they do that is to gain power. They create chaos in this country and division in society on purpose to make you so unhappy, so deeply upset and, and just distraught that you will surrender to the left-wing control over this country that Democrats, Marxists, socialists, leftists have always wanted since time began. It is a dupe. It is a, it is a lure. It's a trap. It's a lie. What the left tells you is a lie with the goal, the mission they've always had, which is to control more and more of your everyday life. That, I tell you that, when I spoke in Colorado, first of all, it was a great meeting and, and really wonderful. Oh, by the way, I met Tina Peters. I uh, met Tina Peters, the woman who is a true hero in the quest to, to move us toward having election integrity. Met her, um, hope to have her on the show sometime soon. But the overall message I want to tell you about is my message was well received 
And it was because what I said to them, what I'm telling to you is true. America is a country filled with good and noble, extraordinary people who do the right thing nearly all the time. That's what America is. And when you hear the left, doesn't mean America is perfect. No, America is not perfect. No country in all of human history on the planet Earth has been perfect. But America has become closest to establishing an orderly, fair, free, robust, safe, just society because of the founding ideas of America. And it is those founding ideas of America that leftists hate because those founding ideas are based on freedom of the individual and what leftists want is their utter control over the individual. That is really the big division in America today is whether or not we want to hold on to individual freedom or let the leftists take everything over as they have always wanted to do since time began, take everything over so we then lose our freedom. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Okay, so I talk about Buffalo evil and leftist racial agitators. I really want, first of all, I am deeply sorry for, saddened by, horrified by what happened in Buffalo. There was a shooting at a, a grocery store. Uh, clearly, at least from all the indications that uh, first come out, the shooter uh, was racist, a, a racist guy, and, was, and uh, he ended up, um, he shot 13 people. I think 11 passed away, two are uh, surviving, uh, and the vast majority of the victims were black. And he had, this, this shooter had a history of saying racist things, of saying horrible white supremacist racist things. So let me make clear, if it's not already, every sane American of every political background, every race, ethnicity, national origin, and skin color hates racism, hates white supremacy, deplores racism, lives that tries their best to live their lives, honoring the Martin Luther King idea to judge others by their character and not the color of their skin the content of their character. You know, the vast majority of Americans try to do this. There are some extremists, some radically hateful, racist people in this country, and they are a, and there shouldn't be any, but there are, they are a tiny portion of Americans. The FBI was on to this guy several years ago. I'm not sure, in high school, things he wrote about in high school, you know, we can look later and decide whether they should have moved, done something sooner to him. But I want to talk about the, the way, the, the political ramifications of what occurred in Buffalo. Number one, no doubt you're going to hear gun control. We got to get control of the guns. Got to jump on, get the guns. Can't have people having guns. It, it'll be the first argument the left makes, of course, is you know that that the whole answer is to take away your guns. I mean, we've been over this territory many times. Not going to do it today, but no one who's law-abiding needs to turn in their guns, and no one who's a criminal is going to turn in their guns. So you're going to end up with the law-abiding citizens being forced to turn them in because. You end up with, and then you'll have only the criminals armed. But the real point I want to make and explore with you today about what happened in Buffalo is how the political parties react. The left is so predictably, outrageously, obnoxiously dishonest. I want to talk about how they reacted. So to start with, um, there is a, a member of Congress, Elise Stefanik. Uh, she's a, you know, she's a Republican. She took over the uh, leadership position that they finally got, uh, uh, took Liz Cheney, the lunatic leftist, out of. So Lee Stefanik uh, put out a tweet. In fact, I think I sent it to, um, yes, I did. Okay, we got a thumbs up over there. That's uh, good. Um, so I sent this tweet. This is by what Lee Stefanik put up. Our nation is heartbroken about the tragic news of horrific loss of life in Buffalo. We are mourning for the entire community and loved ones. During National Police Week, which it apparently is, we must thank and honor our law enforcement and first responders who heroically face skyrocketing violent crimes. Now, that seems like a pretty logical reaction. You know, we just, we are terribly sorry, you know, terribly sorry. Well, I want to tell you what the Washington Post put out. And I, it's really important to get how the Washington Post contorts lies, contorts what's true to make an argument that anyone they can ever target who's a conservative, who's Republican, must be racist. Elise Stefanik has stood up for the idea that the reason that the, the anti-American left, the Biden administration, the entire left, the reason they abandoned the southern border is because they are trying to have America be overrun with non-citizens. This is as obvious as saying two plus two is four. It's that obvious. There's no other explanation for why the Biden administration simply will not enforce the southern border. 
We have people pouring over. We have the DHS uh, head Mayorkas saying and on Sunday morning talk shows, yeah, you know, we have, we're expecting about half a million a month, half million of undocumented illegal aliens over the border in a month. And his answer, what are you going to do about it was, we're going to make sure we have adequate housing, make sure we can take care of them. No thought of protecting the border. There's no explanation. There is no other explanation for what the Biden team is doing at the southern border, except they are abandoning it because they want to have America overrun, flooded with illegal aliens. And if you can't figure that out and then make, get to the logical conclusion, well, why would they want that? Why would anyone whose job it is as you know, president of the United States why would you ban the southern border? And the answer is because the Democrats have always thought the idea of getting a broad Democrat voting base in this country by bringing in illegal aliens and waiting until they have the power to do it and making them all citizens. This is as, it's as obvious and irrefutable as two plus two is four. It's not speculation. It is what they are doing. So Lee Stefanik has pointed this out in the past. She basically said, hey, you know, uh, th what the Democrats are doing at the southern border, it, they are doing this in order to bring in and eventually create a Democrat majority voting base. She's not wrong. She, she couldn't be more correct in what she's saying. Now, so she said that in past tweets about the idea that in, in America, this is why the left won't enforce the southern border. The Washington Post, who is on the side, the anti-American left-wing Washington Post on the side of Biden and the anti-American leftists, they want the border overrun. They make excuses for the border being overrun. They defend Biden as always doing anything about the border. And so they, Washington Post, wrote a hit piece on Elise Stefanik trying to say that the reason she wanted the southern border enforced is because she's racist. Or that even making the argument that the reason leftists abandon the southern border is because they're trying to have America overrun with non-citizens who they can turn into citizens and become Democrat voters. The Washington Post is trying to call that idea racist. There's a term replacement theory, replacement theory. And this is not a term that Elise Stefanik has used. She's used the term, we better have secure borders. We can see the effort the Democrats are going to. They're trying to get the borders overrun. And so this replacement theory, just to be really clear, this replacement theory idea is one that could have many definitions, depending on who's defining it. But uh, the white supremacists, of which are a minute 0 0.0000, I don't know how many zeros would be 0.1% of Americans who are actually white supremacists, but those lunatics who are white supremacists, they use the idea that replacement theory should mean that in, in America, we should be concerned about the southern border because the people who happen to be coming across the border are, happen to be have brown skin or dark skin who are not uh, Caucasian. And so all so, so th their point is that these racist white supremacists, when they say replacement theory, they mean the idea that the, uh, they're ascribing to the, uh, the left that they're letting all these border, this border crossing happening because they want to have a majority of people who are not Caucasian. They want to have a minority, a majority of people who are black, uh, brown skin, Asian, some other non-Caucasian majority. And so that these white supremacists are the ones who try to say replacement theory means uh, that the Democrats are doing this in order to hurt the white population to hurt whites, and they're, they're doing this. They're, they're abandoning the border in order to let a large number of people who are, uh, who are not Caucasian uh, into our country and have our country overrun with a minority uh, population. Uh, and, 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 so, and so these people, when they use that term, when the white supremacists say replacement theory, they are being racist. They are being racist. They are thinking that the whole reason to care about the enforcement of the southern border is to keep America some percentage white. Okay, it's lunatic, it's false, it's stupid, and nobody in the Republican Party thinks that. Stupid and lunatic. What the Washington Post tried to do to Elise Stefanik was to meld those two things and saying, because she thinks we shouldn't force the southern border, she, Elise Stefanik, because she wants the southern border enforced, she must be a replacement theory racist. Well, she's not. It's stupid. It's a lie. And the Washington Post writers understand that's a lie. They, they know it's a lie when they say it. But they're finding a way 
the Washington Post finding a way to support the left-wing agenda of overrunning America's southern border, of having a vast majority of people enter America, not be here legally, become, made, become citizens, and then vote for the party that allowed them to flood our border. The Washington Post likes it. They favor this. So they falsely accuse Elise Stefanik of racism because she thinks we should have a southern border. They are, as the left loves to say, conflating the issues. You can be a strong advocate for a southern border, which pretty much every a strong southern border, an enforced southern border, which pretty much every sane American is in favor of a southern border being enforced. And it has nothing to do with racism. Nothing. If the southern border were being overrun by, all, by people all from, I don't know, Finland or Norway, or all from Belgium, or all from the UK, it doesn't matter the skin color. It doesn't matter the skin color that people crossing a southern border. The point of having insistence on a southern border is insistence on having a country, having sovereignty, having borders, and saying, if you want to come here, you have to find a legal way to do it. The Washington Post knows that's what Lee Stefanik thinks. They know it's what the vast majority of Republicans think. But they make headway and they get headlines and they, they ramp up the hate against Republicans and conservatives by claiming that because Lee Stefanik wanted and still wants, as every sane American does, to have our southern border enforced, that she's somehow racist. And even though she's never said replacement theory and she's never talked about the race and she doesn't say anything like that, somehow she's really guilty of replacement theory which tying back to the Buffalo shooter, that Buffalo shooter had used language in some social media postings along the lines of replacement theory. So they're trying in this post to blame Elise Stefanik and her support for a strong southern border and blame her for the Buffalo shooter, because the Buffalo grocery store shooter, because he liked the replacement theory, which she has never advocated or even spoken about. I mean, I tell you, the left-wing media in this country, you know, Washington Post being one of the lead ones, are dishonest. This, the depth of dishonesty is it's almost scream level. I mean, literally, it's almost scream level and dishonest, but they're trying to do that. Similarly, Liz Cheney, who should actually not even be allowed to have an R by her name, but Liz Cheney spouted off again, you know, as she's wont to do. She's on the January 6th committee uh, lying about January 6th, but um, she... Liz Cheney, I think she, I don't know if she had a tweet I sent, oh, I know what it is. Okay, so Liz Cheney, lunatic, not really Republican, uh, put a tweet out, and fortunately, uh, Molly Hemingway, brilliant, brilliant writer, uh, responded. So look at the bottom tweet first. This is Liz Cheney, who is about to lose her primary by like 40 points or something. Anyway, Liz Cheney, uh, member of the U.S. House, at least for the rest of the year, um, is uh, she tweeted the bottom, the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. History has taught us that what begins with words ends in far worse. At GOP, leaders must renounce and reject these views and those who hold them. Okay, this, I, I mean, people, leave that up there while I rant for a second. Liz Cheney, I, I mean, this is like, deserves to be, uh, you know, recalled, removed, uh, voted out of the House for writing that kind of lie. It is a lie. The Republican Party does not stand with, support, advocate, or in any way defend white nationalism, white supremacy, or anti-Semitism. Those would actually be things that, if anything, belong in the hearts and minds and are proved out by the conduct of the Democrat Party. But, Liz, but the Democrats, the radical left, the anti-American left, have used this argument about America being racist to gain political power. And Liz Cheney, playing right into their hands, or frankly trying to help them, that tweeting out the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, blah, blah. These are, these are just lies. I will tell you very quickly as an aside here, there was some conference that went on, uh, I don't even remember the name of it, but some conference that was put on basically advocating for conservative solutions and we really have to enforce our southern border and, you know, it's really bad if we don't enforce our southern border, blah, blah. And, and a couple of Republicans spoke at it. And it turned out the guy who organized it apparently is a white nationalist or has sometime in his life put up white nationalist, nationalist uh, sayings or, or statements. Okay, so the House leadership, GOP leadership, you know, said, nope, we don't support that. It's wrong. And this is like 
You speak at one conference put on by someone who later, as it turns out, is a white nationalist. And when you're the Democrats, all you see is an opportunity to attack the Republicans. And Liz Cheney, who is not even sane any longer, actually tweets that out. Fortunately, Molly Hemingway, brilliant writer at The Federalist, she tweets, this leftist weaponization of racial division for political power against a multiracial working class GOP is vile and disgusting. Even if it were not being uttered to, among others, a man who survived an assassination attempt, aberrant and utterly disqualifying. I mean, I love Molly Hemingway. She's brilliant. You can take that tweet down. I'm just telling you that you can't really look at politics in America and just say, is there an R or a D by the person's name? Liz Cheney is reprehensible. Repre that's even too nice a word for her. She's, deplor she's a truly deplorable person. So she tweets that out. But fortunately, you know, uh, Molly Hemingway, others um, stepped up and just said, come on. But you have to understand how much the left sees this horrible incident that happened in Buffalo. They don't see it as a, hey, here's time to build together and, and try to you know, fix our society. Let's, let's try to fix racism. Let's talk about how we can um, you know, make things better in America, blah, blah, blah. The left sees, they sees what happened. They see what happened in Buffalo, and instantly their head goes, how can we use this to destroy Republicans? How can we use this to destroy America? How can we use this to destroy people who stand up for an enforceable southern border, an enforced southern border? They see every horrific incident, and horrific it was. I'm terribly sorry for all the people involved, uh, the people who lost their lives, the people injured. For the, it, just, it, it rips at the heart of America. It's a horrible thing. But what happened in Buffalo was not a Republican versus Democrat thing. It was an evil, horrible man. We'll find out more. There are many, many theories flying around about what motivated him. But a horrible man who committed a horrible act, which every single American of every race, ethnicity, national origin, and skin color finds deplorable, despicable, and terrible. And they find the views of white supremacism and white nationalism horrible, despicable, un-American, and that holds for the broad swath of Americans. But it's only the left, it's only the left that finds, sees something horrible like that happen, and they see, oh, opportunity, opportunity here, opportunity to attack and lie about the Republicans. For those people who are listening on radio, you're about to go off to a break at the bottom of the hour. I want to make sure you know you're listening to Debbie Georgiatis. My talk show is called America Can We Talk. You can go to americacanwetalk.org. You can listen to the show there live. You can uh, also at that website, America Can We Talk. You can sign up for a newsletter. You can become a member. I'll tell you more about it. But you can also, I want to make sure if you're on radio, know you have a three-minute break. Come back after the break. Do not go away. Another half an hour of great commentary about America from someone who actually loves America, defends America. So come right back. For everybody else, I'm going to do a quick, quick story uh, during this uh, break time when our radio listeners are gone. Um, this is just a kind of a funny story about Twitter. You know, this huge, uh, this huge Twitter purchase or attempt to purchase is still in progress by Elon Musk um, has really been a kind of an eye-opening thing for many, many, many things, many reasons. One is that, you know, whenever Twitter puts something out, someone... Uh, puts out a tweet, and all of a sudden, it's got tens of thousands of likes and, and tens of thousands of retweets and people commenting, oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And everybody has to assume that, without knowing otherwise, that when you look at Twitter, every one of those, those accounts represents an, a, an actual person. You know, not just a made-up person, not just a bot. Well, what's happened with this purchase by Elon Musk that they're now looking at uh, all of the Twitter accounts and, you know, who actually has these Twitter accounts, are they real people? Because what happens with Twitter is you will discover they have bots, B-O-T-S, bots, meaning non, not people, like, like auto-generated by something worked into the Twitter system. So many, many people have questioned over the decades, or really the last decade, how many people who are on Twitter or how many people who look like they're people are really people versus bots, B-O-T-S, bots, retweeting, commenting, doing all this garbage. So an opinion that maybe really nobody agrees with, you see, wow, that got, you know, 20,000 retweets. Maybe that's right. You know, I don't know. Bots can be used to falsely prop up left-wing views 
and make more people question, if you don't like those left-wing votes, you're thinking, why, you know, um, why would that be said? I'm not sure about that. So bots can be used to prop up left-wing views and cause people to doubt their own thinking. They can also be used to silence conservative views. And, and so I'm just getting to the point, Elon Musk buys Twitter with an assumption about the number of people in the world active on Twitter. Well, part of the deal when Elon Musk signed with Twitter, you know, they're looking into the truth of the, the information behind the number of accounts and realizing there may be a whole lot of bots going on, a whole lot of deception going on. It could actually crater the whole deal. And part of what the deal was, um, if there's a, uh, a um, misrepresentation by either side, a massive, massive payout by the one who misrepresented. And people are actually talking about, is, is, is uh, Elon Musk going to pull back for his purchase price, at least for Twitter, because it turns out that Twitter, which would be completely unsurprising to me, Twitter lied about, misrepresented the number of people uh, who are really using Twitter. There's also something uh, that Elon Musk shared about, uh, shared about his Twitter, and I want to share this in just a moment because our radio listeners are coming back right now. Welcome back to our radio listeners, Debbie Georgiatis, America Can We Talk at americacanwetalk.org. So Elon Musk is now rethinking, they're kind of stepping back, looking at how much of Twitter was, you know, pretty much a lie, a grotesque exaggeration, uh, and how many people really are followers and, and active on Twitter. Because actually, if he, Elon Musk, is buying a, uh, the Twitter world, and it turns out that there were far fewer users on Twitter than everybody thought, then he probably overpaid. And he maybe gets to, you know, should get to buy it for a lower price. And I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I do know that I completely, Twitter was used by the left since time began. Twitter was used to manipulate public thought, to shut down conservative views, to celebrate liberal views. So the idea they would retweet, retweet something that isn't even true, but it fits the left-wing narrative, completely believable. The other thing Elon Musk put out very quickly was, he put out, and this is, I think, linked at our website, americacanwetalk.org. He issued a warning on the Twitter algorithms. Um, and the twi what he basically did, he said, you can, on your own Twitter feed, you can decide you don't want to go along with the, with the algorithm that Twitter is setting up for you. So he says, this is a tweet from Elon Musk, very important to fix your Twitter feed. Number one, tap your home button. Number two, tap stars on the upper right of the screen. Number three, select latest tweets. It says, you are being manipulated by the algorithm in ways you don't even realize. Easy to switch back and forth and see the difference. He's really exposing Twitter. He doesn't even own it yet. you got to love him. Okay, more to be on that to follow. Okay, I want to do a quick thing. Uh, the Sussman trial started today. Um, you know, this um, poor fellow, um, I shouldn't say poor fellow, Sussman is on trial uh, being uh, prosecuted uh, under the uh, control of the um, specially appointed counsel who was appointed by Bill Barr. Uh, Bill Barr put, uh, appointed John Durham to look into how in the world this complete lie about Trump-Russia collusion make it so far down the path that America got duped for years and years. How'd that even happen? So this is, you know, what John Durham is digging in to find out. Well, his, he's currently prosecuting. To, the trial started in Washington. Michael Sussman, an attorney at Perkins Coie, and the, the, it's the simplest point of what he's being prosecuted for. Sussman brought the story of this massive Trump-Russia collusion to the FBI and said when he brought it, you know, uh, this is, I'm not representing a client. I know I'm an attorney. I'm an attorney here in Washington. He's bringing it to the FBI, bringing it to your attention, very, very concerned as a, as a good citizen, you know, very concerned about Trump-Russia collusion. Well, he was representing a client which, in the name of Hillary Clinton and the Clinton campaign. So his crime is lying to the FBI. And it's kind of an open and shut case because he did say that and he was representing her. But I want to just plant this little seed and think about this, because we'll follow this trial um, and, and have more to say about it. I said in the past, I think that would be great if Sussman decided, you know what, I'm actually going to, um, I'm actually going to go ahead and, and turn state's evidence. I'm going to say, okay, you know, in exchange for no jail time, I'll tell you all about how we all inside the Hillary campaign and Perkins Coie and Fusion GPS, how all of us cooked up the Trump-Russia collusion uh, thing, or at least were participants and supporters of it. But one thought I had about what the defense should do, 
I mean, you're defending someone who, on, you know, in black and white, there's really no defense. It's like, yeah, he, he lied. He, you know, he told them he wasn't representing Hillary, but he was, which has been evidenced by the fact that Hillary and team are trying to prevent evidence from getting in on this trial based on attorney-client privilege. But the thing I want to plant this seed, and I'll come back to this, because this will be a fun trial to watch, but that is this. The defense team, you know, they're in Washington, and, and Washington's filled with liberals, filled with liberals, and filled with liberals who actually, you know, pretty much hate Trump, like they, like they think that's the duty of every citizen to hate Donald Trump. And so there's an argument that Sussman's people, lawyers, can make, which is essentially, he didn't, he, Sussman, didn't really mislead the FBI um, because, you know, the FBI, they knew, uh, everyone knows Trump is guilty, rotten guy. Everyone knew that he, Sussman, really represented Hillary. And so, you know, if they didn't really believe what he said, if they didn't really believe him when he said, I'm not representing anyone, I mean, it, it's the, the Washington, D.C. insiders who all know everything that's going on, you can see the Sussman team just take, taking the defenses, you know what? This is ridiculous. So he said he didn't represent anybody when he made this. Everyone knows he represents Hillary. That's what he does. And so, and everyone knows Trump's a bad guy. And so they're kind of hoping or counting on, I think, the idea that the larger view of justice in the eyes of a jury in Washington will not be to look at the question placed to them, which is, did he lie? Which is, of course, yes. But they may be swayed by the way the defense presents the arguments. It has a closing argument and presents evidence to get around to the getting the jury to more or less say, well, so what if he lied? Okay, so he lied. Everyone hates Trump. We know we're supposed to hate Trump. Hillary hates Trump. Perkins Coie, I mean, they, everyone hates Trump. So, so what if he lied? It's kind of like one of those on the edge of community justice kind of things that juries can sometimes do given all the facts and circumstances, they can find someone not guilty because I, you know, all the factors that are at play in many other cases involving criminal conduct where a jury just kind of does, you know, it's community justice. You know, we're just, um, you know, and the fact is we're not going to let some guy who was trying to help the Hillary team and trying to help, you know, uh, Fusion GPS and trying to help the whole cabal get rid of Trump. So what if he lied? I think the lawyers representing Sussman are going to try to subtly make that argument to the jury. They can't openly argue, so what if he lied? But they can make that implication. They can present evidence and closing arguments in a way that basically convinces the jury, find him not guilty, even though you know he lied, because it was for the greater good of getting rid of Trump. And everyone knows that was the greater good. I'm telling you, that's, I think, where they'll have to head. They're hoping for a jury who just will say, yeah, we hate Trump much as much as everybody else, and we're proud of ourselves, um, and so we're, we're just fine with you know, getting, um, getting uh, you know, giving him a not guilty verdict because we really, on balance, don't really care that much um, what, what he really said or whether he lied. I think that was, it was probably a calculation by that, like that, by the Sussman uh, lawyers, and I wouldn't be surprised if that is the outcome. I mean, it's a relatively minor charge that he didn't say, he said he wasn't representing someone he was. And you can't lie to the FBI, but I could see it's kind of a, almost a de minimis argument that they'll make to the jury. Okay, to be continued, I want to hit more about how all this assessment trial impacts Hillary, but I got to wait till tomorrow because I want to hit this last story. I think it's so, so, so interesting. So right now we're in this major conversation around the country about the World Health Organization and the effort made by the Biden team to bring, uh, to bring uh, an argument to this meeting coming up May 22nd, uh, or 20, uh, yeah, May 22nd or 28th, I think it is, World Health Organization, which in essence is designed to have all participants, all signatories commit that in the future, all pandemics will be, um, will be uh, fall under the jurisdiction of the World Health Organization to declare a pandemic, to declare the policies needed to deal with it, to order what people have to do to comply with or to be or, or to go along with the, the vast mission of the World Health Organization to keep everyone safe. Massive 
attempted capitulation of America's sovereignty. Before I go into that more detail, I sent Mr. Emilio, my wonderful new producer, um, I sent him a uh, clip. Uh, this is, um, I don't know what number it is, but it's a clip that has, um, uh, that has the World Health Organization. I think it might be the first one there. Yeah, uh, from the pandemic is over and about who. Let's play that clip. Prepare for the next health crisis because there will be others. The pandemic is not over. And as it persists, it changes. It's misguided to think this pandemic is over. The pandemic is not over anywhere until it's over everywhere. We cannot be complacent because the pandemic is not over. But as we know all too well, the pandemic is not over. The pandemic is not over. Craving a return to a pre-pandemic normalcy uh, rather than acknowledging that the virus may have other plans. At the World Health Assembly this month, WHO will present a plan to strengthen the global architecture for health emergency preparedness, response and resilience. This includes the creation of a financial intermediary fund to support equitable access to life-saving tools in the face of future epidemics and pandemics. And we're increasing our support for a new pandemic preparedness and global health security fund that will be established at the World Bank this summer with $450 million in seed funding. It is clear that a coordinated global response is required to combat future health emergencies. We continue our call to strengthen the global health security architecture with transparent, inclusive, and collaborative processes. We support your proposal, dear Joe, to set up a new fund for pandemic preparedness at the World Bank, operating in close coordination and cooperation with the WHO. Come together to shape new international norms on these issues. Together, we can establish common understandings that guide our collective action. To strengthen the international health regulations and negotiate a new international instrument for pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. Vaccines. Vaccines. We call for policy commitments to boost vaccination. To help get shots in arms. Getting vaccines from tarmacs into arms. We also need to accelerate vaccine uptake and ensure vaccines make it into arms quickly and equitably. And sustain our efforts to get, get shots in people's arms all around the world, expand access to treatment and save lives everywhere. Okay, I wanted to play that because they've obviously all got their talking points handed out ahead of time. The pandemic is not over. We can save lives. We need to get shots in arms. I want to hit three enormously important points. Number one, all of this talk about the pandemic is not over. I urge you, I beg you to go to my website, americacanbetalk.org and read the article that is reporting on the global COVID summit declaration. So these people you just heard, this cast of characters who are saying the pandemic's not over and understand what they're saying. They want to transfer all authority to the World Health Organization to decide when pandemics are. They're funding yet another global massive mission. And it's not to give people access to vaccines who might want them. It is to get needles in arms. It is to force vaccination. Number two, I urge you to read this article, Global COVID Summit Declaration. This is now a joint statement representing 17 thousand physicians and medical scientists around the world who are calling for at the same time the leftists in this planet earth the leftist globalist biden included are pushing to give who all the power over uh, future pandemics actual medical doctors are meeting and talking and they had a global summit um, on covid 17,000 people have now signed on, and the basic what they're saying is it is time to end the national emergency, restore scientific integrity, and address crimes against humanity. I mean, these things could not be more polar opposite. These political types who all love globalism, 
all love World Health Organization controlling everything, regardless of how badly they screwed up the pandemic reaction because they were controlled by China. But the, all these people want to do is get more money assembled in their pockets and come up with more controlling mechanisms over, over the people of the planet Earth. At the same time, this global COVID summit declaration is listing out, I mean, it's, they make a bunch of findings. These doctors who've actually been treating COVID patients, patients, they're saying, we need to stop the whole sense of a national declaration. Stop. We don't need to be doing this. We don't need to have this massive international cabal of seizing political power, medical power over the freedom of the individual. So they say, they, they run through what they think should happen. These are the actual doctors who treat patients. We declare... And the data confirm that the COVID-19 experimental genetic therapy injections, otherwise known as vaccines, mRNA vaccines, must end. We declare doctors should not be blocked from providing life-saving medical treatment, which they were in America, in America, still ongoing. I just had a friend whose husband, excuse me, whose father passed away from COVID in a hospital after they withheld ivermectin. And, and the treatment is the family and the doctor wanted the patient to have, hospital said no. And her father died, an older guy, but still. Okay, so doctors are being interfered with by the medical powers that be. We declare the state of national emergency, which facilitates corruption and extends the pandemic, should be immediately terminated. We declare medical privacy should never again be violated. All travel and social restrictions must cease. We declare masks are not and have never been effective protection against an airborne respiratory virus in the community setting. Something that all doctors learn, you know, medical school 101, viruses are not stopped by masks. They're too tiny. Masks do no good in stopping virus spreading. We declare funding and research must be established for vaccination damage, death, and suffering. I mean, they go on. So just think, these are happening on the exact same time on planet Earth. The globalist leftist power grabbers, they can't wait to have more control of your life. They're pushing to give WHO control, WHO WHO, World Health Organization, and take away the sovereignty of the, of the member states. And at the same time, COVID doctors who've been laser focused on finding cures, advocating cures, urging people to understand there are many effective treatments, they're saying we gotta go in exactly the opposite direction. I vote for the ones who want freedom, and I'm going to pass, move along to talk about, so what do we do about this? So I will tell you that um, there's a great congressman uh, named Rep. Massey, M-A-S-S-I-E. I'm pretty sure he's from Massachusetts. Anyway, um, he's talking about this idea. He, he's saying he doesn't care what this treaty that they're trying to amend at the World Health Organization. He says treaties, he says what he tweeted out. Treaties do not override our Constitution. If a treaty purports to supersede our Constitution, that treaty is unenforceable. It is seditious to promote the idea that a president and 67 senators, oh, thank you for putting that up, um, have license to void the Constitution or any of our laws. So Massey is on the good guy's side trying to say you cannot, and this gets me to a point I really want, you can come back to me, a point I want to make about this. This whole battle's been going on about how much people should get active in challenging what Biden is trying to do with the World Health Organization. And I want to hit one point by, I still have time yet, one point by uh, Daniel Horowitz, brilliant, brilliant writer at Conservative Review. He's always brilliant. And he has an article out talking about what is actually occurring. If you don't understand the detailed logistics of what's occurring, at the World Health Organization, I urge you to read this. It is easy to read. He's a great writer, Daniel Horowitz, Conservative Review. It's linked at our website, americacanwetalk.org, at the homepage, under shows, drop down, list of links, you'll see his article. So what he is basically, he explains the details of how the treaty would work, this, this revision would work, but he's basically saying um, he wants, there was a, a originally a pandemic treaty um, and that the quest to control public health, uh, the whole idea was to give the World Health Organization more power over sovereign states. And in January of this year, Tedros, um, I can never say his last name correctly, the Director General of the World Health Organization, um, Gabrasius, um, explained the treaty, getting this treaty was a priority to urgently strengthen World Health Organization as the leading and directing authority on global health at the center of the global health 
architecture, and he says, we are one world, we have one health, we are one WHO. Biden, happy to capitulate to that, is all part of this, but the amendments essentially are going to delete a critical sentence out of the previous agreement of Article 9 of the 2005 International Health Relations. The point being, we came together with a treaty, we had this treaty in the past, one thing they're trying to change now is to take out this one sentence. Before taking any action based on reports of a pandemic, the World Health Organization shall consult with and attempt to obtain verification from the state party in whose territory the event is allegedly occurring in accordance with the procedure set forth. So they used to say in this treaty where, you know, if there seems to be a pandemic, World Health Organization going to consult the country where it is, find out what's happening. Nah, none of that, none of that. This is centralizing power in the hands of the World Health Organization. And, um, I, I mean, it, it, I, I, this is, gets a little bit uh, too detailed to go into. I'm sorry, this, this, in this time today I have left, too detailed to go into, but the, uh, about the way it will all operate. I mean, every step of the way, Biden is finding, the Biden team is finding more ways to take away, take away America's sovereignty or attempt to, more ways to give authority to the World Health Organization, more ways to cut out the time we have to think about it, more, he's doing everything he can to take away the control over pandemics in America, take that out of the hands of the actual medical doctors who treat patients and put it in the hands of the World Health Organization, who is part and parcel of the massive globalist effort going on. It could not be more outrageous. Uh, the great idea that Daniel Horowitz has here is that states, as in the 50 states in this here United States of America, states should, in his terms, preemptively nullify any World Health Organization international pandemic regulations. States should say, country states and states in America should say, we're not complying with anything the World Health Organization has to say about this pandemic. Not complying ahead of time, we are retaining our sovereignty over what, the, what is done in our country. And he's saying every Republican running for office, state or local, must pledge to pass a resolution preemptively declaring these regulations null and void, as he says, only something ratified by 67 senators, a two-thirds of the Senate required by the Constitution, has a force of law. He's, and he's talking about the idea that this is not just, uh, Daniel Horowitz says, not just a horrible idea to let the World Health Organization be in charge, but he's also talking about the mental um, atmosphere, the, the, the kind of psychological operation this kind of World Health Organization vote is, is intending to breed. He said they are clearly grooming the public. We, the public, we are being groomed to accept a Shanghai-style concentration camp created by the global governments. And he's talking about the idea, nip the, nip the shoots of arbitrary tyrannical powers in the bud before they blossom. Congressional Republicans must submit to block, must commit to blocking all of whose funding, World Health Organization's funding in the upcoming budget bill. Just block it. Say no. State legislatures must be ready to convene and prohibit and even criminalize the implementation of any international standard on pandemics. Congressional Republicans need to stand up. Well, I got to tell you, folks, we've not had a huge, great track record with Congressional Republicans standing up for much of anything. But if there ever was a time the American people are ready to be done with this pandemic control tyranny, the COVID tyranny, it is now. He's making brilliant suggestions. I want to just add to that. We're near the end of the show, and our radio listeners go off in just a couple of minutes here. But this show is committed. I am all about defending unique and extraordinary greatness of America it is why I do my show. This World Health Organization mission by the Biden team could not be more offensive to anyone who actually believes in the sovereignty of America. Daniel Horace is exactly right. I mean, it should be even Democrats, but you never can get them to stand up for freedom. But Republicans, conservatives, everyone running for office should be not just wait till they're asked and float the idea, maybe I'd be okay with the idea of stopping them ahead of time. Republicans should be on their feet, leading the charge, standing up in Congress and state legislatures saying, we are not complying with anything who says about pandemics because we're America and we have our own sovereignty. If you're listening on radio, you're about to go off uh, and the end of the hour, uh, you, you have like 45 seconds left. I do want to remind you again, 
My name is Debbie Georgiatis. Our show is America Can We Talk. It is available online always at americacanwetalk.org. At that website, you can listen to all of our past shows, past interviews, read our blog posts, read our Why It Matters series. You can read all about us. You can also, very soon, you're going to be able to read about our upcoming summit. October 15th, we have unbelievably great speaker. It's a new great speaker committed over the weekend. So we have great speakers coming, a great summit on preserving America. And so radio listeners come back every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. For the rest of you listening, I always close out this show every day by talking about why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started with Durango, Casablanca, and America Today. Ideas from my Colorado talk, the movie classic, best movie ever, Casablanca, was released in 1943. World War II wasn't over, World War II outcome wasn't known, yet Hollywood knew no one had to explain why everyone wanted to escape to America. Everyone then, overwhelmingly consensus, was America's a good, extraordinary, great country. Everyone knew it. And most of the world still knows it, except for the leftists. Since 1943, America has moved in a positive direction on all societal fronts, raising the standard of living and for all rungs the economic ladder, racial progress, harmony, Progress in equality for women in all sorts of ways. Progress, health care, longevity, access to health care. America continues to has gotten better and better in the nearly 80 years. Yet the radical left Hollywood today tell the American people their country is evil, a hotbed of racial bigotry and violence and intolerance and all the other things the left is always throwing out and lacking compassion for the less, the less fortunate. The left storyline about America is a lie and must be rejected on all fronts. And we talk about Buffalo evil and the leftist racial agitators. The Washington Post and other leftist legacy media try to equate border enforcement with racism and elevate the Buffalo incident into proof of systemic racism in America. Couldn't be more false. This leftist narrative is a lie. Mass shootings have evolved into partisan political spectacles over big societal themes. Individual culpability and responsibility gets lost in the competing narratives. A lot yet to be learned about the Buffalo incident, but the shooter's apparent tribute to victim of Kenosha hate crime highlights the media's culpability in fomenting racial division through exclusive focus on race of the perpetrator and the victims. In Kenosha, Black-on-white crime was ignored. You almost forgot it even happened. It's dropped from the news so instantaneously. In Buffalo, white-on-black crime is hyped, and it will be for months. Leftist agitation toward racial division must be seen through and rejected. In Twitter truth, algorithms and bots and liars, oh my, Elon Musk is highlighting what Rush Limbaugh first highlighted. Limbaugh, by the way, when he was being attacked, when it's referring to he was being attacked by somebody, and he had the money and the wherewithal to dive in and, and, and eventually prove that this massive mob on Twitter that seemed to be so massive attacking him was done by 10 people. Twitter is abused by leftists using technology to make a tiny minority's voice appear to be a mob of much greater magnitude. Musk has put Twitter acquisition on hold, pending verification that no more than 5% of the users are fake bots. Analysts have long suspected Twitter's user estimates may be off by 15% or more. Musk may lower his offer or walk away. Either way, the exercise has exposed Twitter as not an honest reflection of majority opinion, more like manipulative and fraudulent. An Sussman trial threatens Hillary. Durham's trial of Michael Sussman for lying to the FBI starts today nominally about whether Sussman lied when he told the FBI he was not representing a client. At the time, he shared ginned up, as in faked, created by Hillary, Russia collusion story with the FBI and DOJ. Evidence of guilt is strong and unambiguous. Sussman defense seems to be either everyone knew he was acting on behalf of Hillary campaign, so a surface lie doesn't really matter, or a jury in Washington will be all leftists who hate Trump, so all lying is excused if the purpose was to get Trump, and so they'll find him not guilty. The real stench around the case, Hillary Clinton led a deep state coup attempt in the form of the Russian collusion, collusion hoax, and everyone knows it. But will U.S. justice system be able to deliver justice? And finally, power-hungry WHO versus the global COVID summit. Who and the public health authorities now lock in a battle with traditional physicians? The who story? Pandemic's not over. More danger ahead. More centralized control, planning, and money needed. Only certain experts can be trusted. 
with traditional physicians, the global COVID summit story, return to the Hippocratic Oath, primacy of doctor-patient relationship, integrity and not financial conflicts of interest to govern health strategies. Pfizer document dumps are making Pfizer and the FDA and all public authorities look more and more corrupt. They may take decades to restore trust. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can you hear America Can We Talk? Truth about America.